Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. Great. Well, I'm thankful to the Lord. I, I love what God is doing at our church. This is a special place. And what God is doing here, what God will do continuously is going to be special, breathtaking. Um, because a part of what I do, I speak a lot, uh, both vocationally and also because of other things I'm involved in in life, in the kingdom. And I'm in about probably 75 different churches or conference settings a year where I speak. And um, how many of you know, not all places are created equal. And I mean it when I say something special is happening here. So as a church family, let's just jump in, right? Let's just jump in and, and get all that God has for us. Because I, I agree with what launched us and what started us was God indeed does have a pent-up desire to pour out His Spirit in the place that bears His name, right? So when I, was, when I was growing up, one of the things I could count on, I had a fairly unique childhood. I won't get into it. But one of the things I could count on is when we went to my grandma's house. We called her Ma. So I did not know her real name. Her real name was Sylvia. I found that out, no joke, when I was 14. So I thought her name was Ma. And so anyway, on Saturday mornings, we went to Ma's house. And like clockwork, the routine was always the same. We showed up at Ma's house at 8 o'clock on Saturday mornings, and the first thing we did is we had breakfast. And we had the same thing for breakfast every single Saturday. And this is what we had. We had an ice-cold, unopened, two-liter of Coca-Cola Classic. We had oatmeal cookies. They were not homemade. They were the oatmeal cookies. They say they're cookies that you get a 1,000 of them for 99 cents at the Dollar General store. You know what I'm talking about. It's like somebody went to the lumber yard and swept up all of the sawdust off the floor, mashed it, threw a few oats in there, took Elmer's glue and sugar, called that icing, and then they sell them to creepy grandmas like Ma for 99 cents. That's what it was. But everything tastes good when you dip it in coffee. So Ma always had a fresh pot of black coffee. And as a preschooler, I love going to Ma's house because it is the only place I was allowed to drink coffee. Coffee, Coca-Cola, oatmeal, cookies. Then at about 8.30 after we finished breakfast, we went out into the yard and we always engaged in different uh, types of manual labor. Sometimes we mowed her grass. Sometimes we picked up sticks. Sometimes we picked up the dead snakes if she had an infestation. We always fed her cats. She is the lady, the cat lady, who fed all of the cats in the neighborhood. She had paper plates filled with cat food that she always put on her porch. Sometimes we scraped her wooden siding and put a fresh coat of white paint on it. Sometimes we cleaned out her gutters. Sometimes we washed off her windows. And once a month, we always went to the grocery store with Ma. Doll's Foods, Euclid Avenue in Des Moines, Iowa. I'll never forget it. Ma had the same routine every time we walked into the grocery store. We always started in aisle one. That's where Ma picked up a loaf of white Wonder Bread. And then a few aisles later, we always picked up the cans of deviled ham. For those of you who don't know what deviled ham is, go to the Spam Factory, and if it's not good enough to make it into the can of Spam, that's deviled ham, okay? And then we always picked up a fresh plastic bottle of French's yellow mustard. And in the summer months, Ma always picked out a melon. Now, Ma had a unique um, strategy at picking out melons. What you need to know about Ma is Ma was homeless basically her entire life 
until after she got married. She grew up in poverty, and they were migrant farmers. They literally lived in a tent, and they moved from state to state. She grew up picking cotton and walking beans and detasseling corn, doing things like that. And then after her husband died in the invasion of Normandy, the government gave her a small check, and she purchased her first house. Ma never graduated from high school. She never went to college. She, uh, I think, went to school up to eighth grade. She loved Scrabble, and she read the dictionary. But when Ma wanted to pick out a melon, here's the way it went down. Ma didn't hear very well. Hearing loss runs in our family. By the time Ma stepped into eternity, she was completely deaf. You literally would talk to her, and she wouldn't respond. She couldn't hear you. So to get Ma's attention, you had to verbally abuse her, and it literally caused her hearing aids. Today, the hearing aids are cosmetic and small. Back in the day, they were huge. So you had to scream at Ma, causing them to vibrate, and whenever she felt the vibration, she turned around to see whose lips were moving. And then she read your lips. So when you're in the grocery store and you need to get Ma's attention and you're screaming at your granny, how many of you know people stare at you like you're a bad person? So when it was time to pick out a melon, Ma always walked around the little stand of melons. And this is what she did. She walked up to the melons, each melon, and began to spank the melons. When you're a teenage boy and granny's over in the corner spanking a watermelon, it's a little awkward. And then Ma picked up the melon and shook it, held it up to her ear. And only God and the angels know what Ma heard. And then for some reason, whenever the melon sang the right song, she stuck it in the cart, and we went to the checkout line. And right by the checkout line was the big stand where she picked out once a month a new jigsaw puzzle. The jigsaw puzzles she picked out weren't 60 pieces. They were about 6,000 pieces. We went home, and we had lunch. And here's what we always had for lunch on Saturdays at Ma's house. You can guess it. We had deviled ham sandwiches with mustard, oatmeal cookies, two liter unopened of ice cold Coke, and another pot of black coffee. And in the summer months, a slab of melon. And when we ate lunch, we never sat at the table. We always ate over here in the corner because the kitchen table is what Ma reserved for uh, her puzzle creation. And here's the way Ma put together her puzzles. Maybe you can relate. She took the plastic off of the box, took the lid off of the box, propped the lid up against the wall, flipped the box upside down, rightly uh, flipped every single puzzle piece right side up, and then she found the four corners. You always have a freebie, copyright Milton Bradley, bottom right-hand corner. And then you build the puzzle, starting with the straight-edged pieces, and then Ma always assembled the puzzle based on the image that was on the lid. And as a little boy, I remember thinking, what would happen if I switched her lid? And that's the first time I ever heard Ma cuss. It's also the first time she ever spanked me. And that woman who spanked melons could whip you pretty good, trust me. I remember watching Ma as she was frustrated. You see, she had all of the right pieces. I remember one time she picked up a pair of scissors and actually tried to trim the piece to make it fit, right? How many of you know we do that? She had all of the right pieces, but she was trying to put together something that the designer never intended her to create. What I want to talk to you about briefly today is making sure no one switches your lid. Because you and I can be successful at what, in the end, doesn't line up with what the designer wanted it to look like. And the key to this is something called the anointing. Everybody say anointing. 
Now, when I say anointing, you may have a different, you may have a plethora of opinions. When you hear the word anointing, you may think what the televangelist says, or you may think something mystical or something out there. But actually, the anointing is something that, first of all, is biblical, but it's very practical and very accessible. The, the word anointing in the Old Testament is a word, I'll tell you the word, it's mashak. It's a word that literally means to take your hand and dip it in a bucket of oil and smear something with it. It's not necessarily putting a little on your finger and doing that. I'm thankful for that approach when I get prayed for, trust me. It's not someone taking a little basting brush like you do on Thanksgiving Day. It's literally someone scooping up enough oil to smear it on you. And you're so covered and dripping with oil that as you walk, you leave a trail. You know, that's the beauty of the anointing is that the way you live your life, you leave a trail. And it's supposed to be a sign and a wonder. People are supposed to look at our life and wonder, wait, what's different about you? And then when they follow the trail, who do they find? Jesus. It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's not the anointing of your talent. It's not the anointing of your charisma. It's not the anointing of your performance. It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He anoints not who you pretend to be. He does not anoint who people perceive you to be. He anoints who God created you to be. When I think of the anointing, I think of a little obscure proverb. It's Proverbs chapter 30, verse 28. This is what it says. It says, the spider skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is in king's palaces. It skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is found in king's palaces. Your Bible may say lizard. It's the same Hebrew word. That's why. The spider does not have a LinkedIn account. The spider is not on Instagram. It is not on Facebook. The spider does not have a PhD. The spider does not have a network. The spider has simply learned how to function according to its design. And because of that, the spider goes where only those with a divine invitation can go. When I think of the anointing, that's what I think. I think of simply being who you are. The anointing is when divine resource and human authenticity collide. When I say authenticity, I'm not referring to maybe uh, the way our culture would define authenticity. People use the word, hey, I'm just being authentic to justify compromise. No. Or sometimes people say, don't judge me, I'm being authentic. Well, you can say don't judge you, but I do have actually the command in Scripture to evaluate your fruit. I'm not judging you. You just say you're an apple tree and you've got oranges. You are an orange tree. I'm not judging you. I'm just calling a spade a spade, right? When we hear the word authenticity, sometimes people use that as an excuse not to submit to authority or come underneath correction. But authenticity is actually all about knowing Jesus. The Bible says in Colossians 3, you died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. That means if you want to know who you are, you gaze into the eyes of God where you catch a true reflection of who you really are. Who you are is there, and the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you become like you. I remember a friend of mine, his name's Bill, he said this. He said, ultimately, God wants your will to be done, because what God is after ultimately is not just obedience, but likeness. 
The anointing is when divine resource and human authenticity, your preparation, your surrender, your obedience, your humility, your submission, it's when they collide. Jesus was anointed. And if Jesus needed to be anointed, how much more do we? We know he was anointed because he said so. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he quotes Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 61, 1. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has dipped his hand into the oil and smeared it all over me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. We can develop what I would call functional dysfunction. Which is when, when our life does not match his promise, we will either change what we believe about God to justify our lack of breakthrough, or we will form another belief system. I'm thankful for the different expressions of the body of Christ in the world. I think Catholics can learn from Lutherans. I think Methodists can learn from Episcopalians. I know for a fact Pentecostals can learn from everybody. And everybody can learn from us Pentecostals. So I'm not knocking that. I think God is okay with different expressions as long as they're not, they're not based on division. But what I do know is sometimes we get used to a new normal because of our lack of breakthrough. And the new normal and the only normal for that matter is Jesus. If it doesn't line up with Jesus and what the Gospels and the Word of God from beginning to finish, Genesis to Revelation, testify of, then we continue to pursue and we continue to press in rather than settling and justifying. We say, God, I know there's more and I will not rest until I have you. We need the anointing to thrive in business. We need the anointing to be godly, healthy parents. We need the anointing in our marriages. We need the anointing to make wise decisions. We need the anointing to discern between opportunity and distraction. Because sometimes opportunities can seduce us away from the face of God. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit to thrive in athletics. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit to be a good student in middle school and in high school and at the university. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit to not be conformed to the ways of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We basically need the anointing of the Holy Spirit in every area of our life. It is not just for preachers. It is not just for somebody who gives tongues and interpretation. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is for the mechanic. It is for the farmer. It is for the truck driver. It is for the stay-at-home mom or the stay-at-home dad. It's basically for everybody. And if Jesus needed the anointing, I would suggest that you and I do as well. You say, you know what? I don't feel like God wants to anoint me, or I don't, I don't feel like I'm anointed. Well, let's go to the Word, because you can't always believe everything you think, and you can't always believe everything you feel. The heart is deceitful above all. 1 John 2.20 says, you have an anointing. You have an anointing. It's not that you need to go to seminary and then you have an anointing. And I'm not knocking that. I'm all about education. Get as much as you can as long as that's what the sovereign one is leading you to. It's not just about the intellectual elite. It's not just about people who drive the right cars and put on the nice clothes when they go to church. It's 
something that is accessible to each one of us. And it is incredibly important. Can you function without the anointing? Yes. Can you be successful without the anointing? Yes. You can be highly successful without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Successful at things that in eternity do not matter. At the end of the day, everything we do in this life, according to what Scripture teaches, will be tested by the fire. And only that which remains will we, we, will we be able to lay at the feet of the sovereign one. And I would suggest to you that when we do it in our own strength and when we do it in our own way, it will not endure. But whatever we do unto the glory of God, whether that is to be a mechanic or to be a spouse or to be a parent or you fill in the blank, whatever we do unto the glory of God through under the anointing of the Holy Spirit glorifies him. The anointing is given by God, but it is stewarded by us. Say that again. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is given by God, but it is stewarded by us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Because the majority of the New Testament was written in Greek, some in Aramaic, but because the majority was written in Greek, if you just take the Greek words that I just quoted you in English and literally translate them, this is what it means. Do not be slothful in spirit, but boil in your spirit. But what I've learned about life in the kingdom, and I'm only 41. I turn 42 soon. I'm only 41. I've been walking with Jesus since I was 17. So I don't have a really long history, but I've got a, a, a tiny bit. What I've learned is, is this. God will give us what we need. But what we want, we must pursue. He supplies all of our what needs according to his riches. And there is something about the pursuit. There is something about being lovesick for Jesus it's not that God just says, you're anointed and you're not, and I've destined, and Jeremiah 29, 11 is true for you, but not for you. That's not the way it works. It's God says, behold, I set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. It, at the end of the day, the anointing is a choice. The anointing is a reward of our pursuit. The Bible says in Matthew 7, if you seek, you will find. It does not say if you seek, you inherit. Our inheritance requires intentionality. It requires discipline. It requires being hungry. And rather than succumbing to functional dysfunction and saying, you know what? They have breakthrough. They have breakthrough. I don't. This is just my lot. This is what I'm destined for. I'm telling you what, you can find a lot of people who are far more intelligent than I am, who can speak a lot more eloquently than I can. But I dare you to try to find somebody who's more desperate. And I would suggest the same is true for you, right? Or it should be. It's not about talent. It's not about being the best. But God, I want to be found. If you find anything in me, find a desperation for you. I just want you. Boil in your spirit, that's what it says. I want to be on fire for God. Well, does God give a fire, if I can use an Old Testament metaphor? No, he doesn't. He gives a coal. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, fan into flame the gift of God you received through the laying on of hands. It's not like Paul is saying, Timothy, you're, you're so 
on fire, if I can use that language, in your heart. No, it's like God deposits a little coal. There's a friend of mine who's, who lives in Argentina. His name's Claudio Friedzen. He's a pastor. I was having a meal with him probably three years ago. Just he and I were having breakfast. And I asked him, I said, I'm just curious. Do you think the anointing of the Holy Spirit is just sovereignly given by God? Or do you think the anointing is also a result of our pursuit? This is a man who, if you've ever heard that name, God, God uses him mightily. And this is what he said. He's in this nice suit. And he gets up from the table in this really nice restaurant, actually, and he gets down on the floor. And in his broken English, his English is better than my Spanish. But in his broken English, this is what he says. He gets down on the ground, and he begins to blow like you would a campfire. And he says, he says I believe that if you humble yourself and you get on your face and you learn how to breathe on what God places deep within you, it will turn into a fire. Does God give you a fire? No, he gives you a coal. And in humility and surrender, we bow down and we begin to breathe. Every time we read the Bible, what are we doing? We're breathing on the coal. Every time we fast, what are we doing? We're breathing on the coal. Every time we say no to a temptation, we're breathing on the coal. Every time somebody criticizes us and we remain silent and instead let God be our defender, what are we doing? We're breathing on a coal. Paul says, fan into flame the gift of God you received through the laying on of hands. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury, it is a necessity. John chapter 3 verse 34 says the Spirit is given without limit. That means that you and I, each one of us, are as close to God as we want to be. You just let that settle on you for a second. It's not meant to be mean, it's meant to be an invitation. I think about that verse almost every day. He gives a spirit without limit. It's like, okay, Lord, so there's more. I'm thankful for you, but there's more. I don't want to settle for functional dysfunction. I want more. Hebrews 11.6 says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek. I can't remember the reference. I forgot it. But God's eyes range throughout the earth to find someone whose heart is fully committed. When the Lord is looking throughout the earth. I don't know about you, but I want his eyes landing on me. Who can I trust with resource? Heath. Who can I trust with platform? Heath. Who can I trust with my secrets? Heath. Who can I trust with money? Heath. Who can I trust with mystery? Heath. Who can I trust with a battle? Heath. His eyes want to land on us, don't they? And they land on us when we are fully committed to him. It's possible to be close enough to God that we feel his breath, even if we do not hear his voice. In Isaiah 6, the prophet, he had been in ministry for a while. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And behold, the train of his robe filled the temple. Um, Back then, when an army was victorious in battle, here's what they did. They took the humiliated, defeated king, sat him, because it was typically a male-dominated society, sat him in the center of the town, and they stripped all of the jewels off of his crown and sewed them onto the robe of their king. 
So as a king would walk through the streets of the city, the longer the train of the robe meant that's how valiant and mighty the king's armies were in battle. There is a direct relationship between the length of a king's robe and how mighty he is. And when Isaiah says in chapter 6, I saw the Lord and the train of his robe fills the temple. In Hebrew, this is what it means. The train of his robe keeps filling and filling and filling and filling and filling and filling and filling the temple. It never stops coming. That's the reality that is accessible to each one of us. So when it says he gives a spirit without limit, there should never come a day where we're satisfied. As the deer pants for the water brook, my soul longs for you. It's not about striving. It's not about performing. In Scripture, we're only commanded to strive for one thing, and we strive to enter his rest. That's only what we strive for. It's about being with God. It's okay to be hungry for God, right? So what does the anointing look like? Just for the sake of time, I want to give you one example. Let's go to Acts 19. I want to show you how practical and accessible the anointing of the Holy Spirit is, okay? Because it's not supposed to be hard to understand. It's, it's supposed to be um, simple. Simplicity enables excellence. What does it look like when God the Father dips his hand to the bucket of oil and smears you? may not be what you think. Acts 19, we'll start in verse 8. For the sake of time, we'll just uh, reduce it to a few verses. It says this, verse 8, and he went into the synagogue. He, who is he? He is a guy named Paul. He went into the synagogue. He spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of God or concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way, the way is Another is a synonym for Christianity. Before they were known as Christians in Antioch, they were known as followers of the way. Because Jesus of Nazareth called himself the way. Before the multitude, he departed from them, and he withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Verse 10. And this continued for two years. And all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, God worked unusual miracles through the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Now, this really happened. People came in contact with an apron and a handkerchief, and they're literally healed. Now, before your mind goes to the televangelist who's saying, give me 100 bucks, and I'll send you a green prayer cloth, that's not what's going on here. I'm not saying God can't use that, but that's not at all what's going on here. What's going on here is something ordinary and simple that God anoints. So the anointing is not about the televangelist. It's not about maybe what you've been um, exposed to. It's all about something practical and simple. And one example is in this story. So who is Paul and where is he? Paul is in a place called Ephesus. If you want to go there today, you can. It's on the coast of western Turkey. At this time in history, the city of Ephesus was filled with about 250,000 people, so about twice the size of Springfield, give or take. Ephesus was a place, um, it was a place full of polar extremes. You had the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich. 
you had the ports of the poor because there was a harbor in Ephesus and a lot of slaves who were emancipated or freed who could never get work, they wandered around the streets. Then you had very wealthy people because of a harbor and because of a river, because of the Olympic-style games and, and an extensive banking system. There were very wealthy people in Ephesus. Ephesus was known as a religious place. They worshipped roughly 50 gods and goddesses. In the middle of the city was this huge temple, the temple to Artemis. That's where we get our word art. So it was a very eclectic, artistic culture. Very fashionable. The Romans called Artemis Diana. If you walked around the streets of Ephesus, the streets were filled with witches and warlocks. People who practiced black magic and white magic. It was a very spiritual culture. A secular society, but a spiritual culture. Sounds familiar. And this is where Paul is. And Paul goes to a synagogue, and he spends a few months there. What is a synagogue? A synagogue is a small group of Jewish men who would listen to a rabbi read from the Torah, the scroll, and then they had a conversation about it, and they prayed a few prayers. Women were not allowed to go to synagogue. So when Jesus had conversations with men and women, it was highly offensive to the religious mind. Paul spent a few months in the synagogue. Some believed, many were critical, and Paul left. What's interesting to me is that the criticism and the conflict did not come from the witches or the warlocks. It came from unbelieving believers. So what does Paul do? He leaves the the synagogue... And he goes to the marketplace. It would be like going to the square in Springfield or the square in Ozark. That's where he's at. And what does he do? The Bible says he speaks in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. Not two weeks, but two years. So what is the Hall of Tyrannus? Well, I did some research, and here's what I found. The ancient workday in Ephesus went like this. You started work at 7.30 in the morning, and then at 11 a.m. you took a lunch break. But your lunch break lasted until 4 p.m., five hours for lunch. How does that sound? Right? So you start work in the morning, you get a five-hour lunch break, and then you work again until 9.30 at night. And during the day, what people did, they went on picnics, they went home to to tend to their gardens. They had conversations. Some took a nap. But almost every single citizen of Ephesus went to a public space like this, and they listened to an orator give a speech. It's just what they did. Some, on your day off, you may go to a movie. You may go fishing. I don't know what they did. They went and listened to somebody talk, kind of like this. The Hall of Tyrannus. It was modeled after the Socratic method, if that means anything to you. So here's Paul, a guy who studies under a rabbi named Gamaliel, one of the most infamous rabbis in history. It would be like going to Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge, one of the lucrative, famous universities. Paul was educated from the elite, and in Acts chapter 9, a man whose life was filled with political power and a lucrative amount of money, he encounters Jesus and everything changes. And he has the audacity to say, God has called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He shows up at the synagogue, and it doesn't go well for him. I'm sure people thought when they saw him in the marketplace making tents, what a loser. He supposedly saw God face to face, and he can't even get a job in the synagogue. Yeah, right. That's Paul. Where for two years, he makes tents, which was not an attractive vocation, I can assure you. 
You sit under the hot Ephesian sun. You take your knives and your scratch awls and you take leather and you weave tents. It's, it's hot. It's dirty. Your hands are stained with the oil you use to soften the animal hides. For two years, Paul, the great, quote, man of God, handpicked by God, he's doing manual labor which ironically was illegal for a Pharisee, of which Paul was. Paul was a Pharisee. God called him to unlearn what he was taught. It was illegal for a Pharisee to talk to a Gentile about God. And what does God call Paul to do? Be an apostle to the Gentiles. It was illegal for a Pharisee to say God's ineffable name out loud. What does Paul do? He preaches God's name out loud. Paul is engaged in manual labor. It was unlawful for a Pharisee to be around witches and warlocks or for they would consider themselves ceremonially unclean. What does Paul do? He sets up shop in the middle of the marketplace surrounded by witches and warlocks and he makes tents. How many of you know when you come to Jesus, sometimes you have to unlearn what you think you know? So here's Paul. Two years, that's five hours a day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., Six days a week for two years. Paul stands up and he lectures in the hall of Tyrannus, a hall he rented with his own money that he made making tents. That's 3,120 straight hours of teaching. How many of you know that's a lot? (laughs) How many of you know that's evidence that Paul spent a lot of time with God? You give somebody who's been in the presence of God a microphone, they may talk for 10 hours. Paul talked for 3,120 straight hours. This is where Paul preaches, and a young man named Epaphras wanders into the hall. What day? We don't know. Epaphras is the one who planted the church in Colossae. The book of Colossians was written to that church. Someone named Trophimus or maybe Tychicus wandered into the hall of Tyrannus. All of the churches the Apostle John writes to in the book of Revelation, the church of Laodicea, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, those churches, every single one of those churches were planted by people who wandered up the Lycus River Valley, who would have wandered into the Hall of Tyrannus and listened to some tent maker stand up and talk about Jesus. You just never know who's in the room, do you? It is from Ephesus that Paul writes to Corinth. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, the weapons of our warfare warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. It is from Rome that he writes to the church in Ephesus, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's a very spiritual culture, and arguably, Paul in this city experiences the greatest revival listed anywhere in the Bible. If you want to know what happens, read the entire chapter, Acts 19. It says, God worked unusual miracles through the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchief and the apron, when people came in contact with it, they were healed and set free. What I want you to notice is this. What did God use to work unusual miracles? God did not use the priestly garment. We know they were there because when you keep reading One of the Jewish chief priest's sons were there. They would have been covered with priestly garments. God did not anoint a priestly garment. God did not anoint the tassel that would have hung off the end of the rabbi's prayer shawl. God anointed an apron and a handkerchief of a tent maker. 
an apron that would have been made of animal hide half an inch thick. Thick enough to keep you from bludgeoning yourself when you have a sharp knife and you're doing this. The handkerchief, the Greek word that's translated handkerchief literally is sweat. It would have been the white cloth that he folded and wrapped around. It would have been about five inches wide. He wrapped around his forehead to keep the beads of sweat from dripping into his eyes. It would have been stained yellow and orange and brown. What does God anoint? The handkerchief and the apron. It's always what God anoints. He anoints what's in our hand. The apron and the handkerchief represent devotion. Here's a man handpicked by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Can't even make it in the synagogue. So what does he do? Does he doubt God's promise? No. He stays focused on God's promise, even if his situation gives him a reason not to. The handkerchief and the apron represent, I'm going to stay focused on the last word I heard from you, Lord, even if my situation doesn't line up. The handkerchief and the apron represent good old-fashioned hard work. Sometimes it's okay to pray more than once. It represents pursuing. It represents somebody who said, you know what? I've been praying about this for a week, but I'll pray again. It represents somebody who, not for a week, not for a month, but for two straight years, stood in the hall of tyranny and rented it with his own money. People making fun of him. You can't even get a real job. You're a tent maker. And little did they know that God was advancing the kingdom through the speech given from a guy named Paul. What do the handkerchief and the apron represent? It represents being faithful when no one's looking. It represents when you give me the microphone, I have enough deep down inside me. It represents somebody who had been anointed that God dipped his hand into the bucket of oil and he was so anointed by the Holy Spirit that everywhere he went, he left a trail that always pointed back to Jesus. Who needs to be anointed? You do. Parents need the anointing of the Holy Spirit, don't they? Spouses need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Mechanics do. Farmers do. Businesswomen, businessmen, teachers, athletes, preachers, sons and daughters of the King. Can you be successful in life without the anointing of the Holy Spirit? Yes, you can. You can make money. You can have a career. You can maybe retire one day. You can be successful at a lot of things that in eternity don't even matter. But the key, I would suggest, to living a life that makes sense in view of eternity is to take our handkerchief and our apron, whatever that may be. It's basically to say, God, here I am. Will you anoint me? I want to live naturally supernatural. Lord, will you anoint me with your Holy Spirit? Because if Jesus needed to be anointed to fulfill whatever was on his life, how much more do I? It acknowledges our dependency upon God when we say, God, will you anoint me? When we pursue God and we continue to pursue God, we recognize that unless the resource of heaven collides with the authenticity, the authentic expression of my relationship with God, until those things collide, it's not enough. But when they collide, ordinary things like a handkerchief and an apron become sovereign things that God uses.